welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. We are, as, uh, as Pete said, um, thinking about, talking together about the ways of um, encountering God. And... Um, We've been looking in, in, the, in the moments of, of uh, kind of life change for, for Moses uh, last week uh, in the point, places and points of sin where God's presence is really a convicting, inviting presence into a life change, into repentance rooted in and based on the forgiveness that he has already offered. Today I want to look with you at um, the encounter with God that occurs only I shouldn't say only, but, but primarily through points and places of crisis where we're brought to the edges of uh, our capacity, where we feel uh, like the only thing left for us to crawl under a tree and just pray to die, that kind of crisis. Um, and, and when our experiences with God uh, that we have counted on in the past, the miraculous kinds of things, the overwhelming sometimes kinds of experiences that we have had with God are no longer sufficient for the next stage in our journey, right? So this is where we're at this morning. The, the person that we're going to look at, because these, these encounters are always anchored in normal, ordinary, everyday kinds of people. And it's important that we recognize that, that in the Bible we're not dealing with the race of superhumans who have moments of encounter with God and then channel that experience uh, to the kind of the mere mortals among us. In fact, these are the mere mortals. This is us. That's one of the reasons why I loved what we were talking about last week with David. He's as human as you are and, and more so. Uh, the person we look at this morning is Elijah. And here's a Here's a man who, uh, in, in a few hundred years after where we were last week, David, remember, was the second king of Israel. Uh, the people of Israel longed for a king. God recognized that the only way to break them, to break us, of our longing for some big, strong person to be in charge was to give us that big, strong person to be in charge. And to discover that when people are are given that kind of power, that kind of authority, none of us has the capacity to handle it really well. We will always use power to acquire more power, dealing with our insecurities and our fears, right? We'll, we'll do that, whether it's in a marriage or whether it's in, in a position of, of, of leadership at, at the office or whatever, until we have been shaped and framed and formed in the name of Jesus, we will always use our power to acquire more. So inevitably then, uh, David's monarchy gave way to Solomon's, probably the apex of the Israelite monarchy. So within a hundred years of the beginning of the monarchy with Saul, then David, then Solomon, we have the apex and the beginning of a, of a sharp decline because Solomon's monarchy, Solomon as the king, the wisest Man, Scripture tells us, uh, whoever walked the face of the earth. Acquired wisdom from all kinds of nations and ages uh, and has um, uh, codified a lot of that wisdom in what we now know as the Proverbs, and at least some of them, and Ecclesiastes and the so-called Song of Solomon. Pulling together all of this great wisdom, still the man 
ended up frittering away all of that wisdom. Uh, and his son, uh, Rehoboam, um, did not inherit the kingdom of his father Solomon. So within 100 years, three generations, the promise of the monarchy is over. And now it's just watching it die a slow and painful death as we constantly try and keep the corpse from stinking. <laughs> Pouring energy into our structures. If we only elected the right guy, if we only had, if we only did, if we only, if we only, if we only, only to discover a few hundred years later that in fact what we really need is God to be our king. It takes us almost 400 years of darkness before the prayer that his kingdom would come as answered in the form of Jesus who is born. So we're talking now a span of a thousand years for us to learn the lesson. How many know that we're still trying to learn the lesson that when we get our guy elected, it's not any better than when they get their guy elected. That we need a king named Jesus who will rule the world. That's what we're praying when we pray your kingdom come in the Lord's Prayer. That's what we want. We want God to be the king. We want to be the subjects of a monarchy that is legitimate, rooted in the heavens. So along the way, we have to learn the lessons, though, don't we? Uh, over and over and over, it seems, again. And so the character that we're dealing with today, Elijah, a couple hundred years later, probably one of the greatest of the independent prophets uh, in, the, in the time uh, following uh, uh, um, uh, David's mon monarchy, the kingdom split into Rehoboam, Solomon's son, instead of the 12 tribes of Israel, ended up with only two. And Jeroboam, a rebel, not even a royal son, becomes the king of the northern tribes, the 10 tribes, so-called Israel. So we have Judah in the south, Israel in the north, and, and um, it, 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 it continues to fragment and split and go from there, there on down. Elijah is the one sent from God to call into question the specific behaviors of a king named Ahab in the north. His um, uh, political marriage to uh, Jezebel has made her name famous throughout the centuries as a woman who takes her man down the wrong road. And the wrong road that Jezebel took her man down wrongly was the worship of a god of her choosing called Baal. Baal. God, um, uh, the, the, the god called Baal, so-called, uh, was responsible for uh, wind and weather and rainfall. And so uh, you can imagine how important that is in an agricultural environment, an agricultural society, that we have that God under control so that we get the crops that we need, we get the rain that we need. And, and so the fertility cults, the ways of worshiping Baal involved regularly, prostitution and, and various uh, sexual um, license and so on. You, you know the whole story. It's just sad and sordid and painful, and it doesn't ever work. In, on the other hand, you have Elijah who says, what in the world does God have to do to convince you he is your source? He has blessed you. He has prospered you. He has brought 
um, fertility to the land. He's brought you to the land, and you keep on worshiping other gods. And, and, and then, and then when, 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 when things are a little difficult for you, instead of seeking the face of the Lord, you guys go after and sacrifice your eldest children to Baal. What is wrong with you people? Here's what God is going to do. You think Baal's in charge of the weather. All right, Baal, top this. Three and a half years, it's not going to rain. Why? Because I, the prophet of the Most High God, say so. Put that in your pipe and smoke it. <laughs> right? Elijah is a prophet with an attitude. I need to say this out loud because this is an important thing as the spirit of the prophets begins to resurge in some ways in our own culture. Every prophet, true prophet, is a pain in the neck. However, not every pain in the neck is a true prophet. You might want to write that one down. <laughs> it's important that we know this because Elijah takes his role very seriously and sometimes himself a little too seriously. So unfortunately, he has a playful God to whom he is answered. Over the course of the three years of the drought that he caused by his word, Elijah is taken care of uh, uh, in, in, in great wonder until finally he decides to call a contest a, uh, on Mount Carmel where 450 of the prophets, the priests, the leaders of the worship of Baal assemble in a 24-hour contest where Elijah has just thrown down the gauntlet. If Baal is God, then let him come down and consume the sacrifice that we lay out on the altar on top of Mount Carmel. But if the Lord, Yahweh, Elohim, the creator of the universe, if he is our God, then let him come down and consume the offering. You perhaps know this story in 1 Kings chapter 15, 16, 17, right around in that whole section, right? And you know how it turned out, perhaps. Uh, the prophets of Baal are, are, are just doing their damnedest to make this work. They are cutting themselves. They are calling on the name of God, they are, on their God, Baal. They are, they, are they, are, they are just working themselves up into a religious frenzy, and nothing is happening. The sun is burning down through the heat of the day. They are weary, they are bloodied, they are exhausted, and Elijah's just... Maybe he's gone to the bathroom. <laughs> Why don't you just call a little bit louder? Call a little bit louder. Maybe he's out taking a nap. See, see, and he's just taunting them with this. And then finally, at the end of the day, remember, it hasn't rained for three and a half years at the word of this pesky pain-in-the-neck prophet. No rain means drought. So here on this stone altar laid out with sacrifice, Elijah says, I want you to bring 12 buckets of water and pour them out on the sacrifice into the trench that surrounds it. Remember, water is precious like gold in this culture. No rain, three and a half years. Water is poured out on the altar, on the sacrifice. And then just Elijah says, boys, stand back. 
And without very much more than that, fire falls from heaven, consumes the sacrifice, consumes the stone altar on which the sacrifice is laid, consumes the water in the trench, thus sealing the deal, right? God is God. Let everybody else be a liar. Not Baal, God. 450 prophets of Baal lost their lives that day as a result of the pain in the neck. That was Elijah. He ended the day by calling forth rain again for the first time in three and a half years. So, everybody got the image. This is Elijah. This is who we're talking about. He begins the day taunting the prophets of Baal. Midway through the afternoon, fire falls from the heavens. Hello. He doesn't then immediately go on a book tour. <laughs> with me? He, he, fire falls, consumes everything, right? 450 of the prophets of Baal lose their lives that day. And as icing on the cake, he makes it rain for the first time in three and a half years. That's not a bad day right there. That's a good day's work. However, here's what happens next. Ahab told Jezebel everything Elijah had done, how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. So Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like that of one of them. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. He came to Beersheba in Judah. He left his servant there, and while he himself went a day's journey into the desert, he came to a broom tree, sat down under it, and prayed that he might die. I have had enough, Lord. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. Then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. All at once an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. He looked around and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. He ate and drank and then lay down again. The angel of the Lord came back a second time, touched him and said, get up and eat for the journey is too much for you. So he got up and ate and drank. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Horeb, the mountain of God. There he went into a cave and spent the night. And the word of the Lord came to him. What are you doing here, Elijah? How many have God with an attitude? Okay. He replied, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. All the Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've broken down your altars. They've put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. Go ahead. The Lord said, go out and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Then a great and powerful wind tore the mountain apart and shattered the rocks before the Lord. 
but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake came a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. When Elijah heard that, he pulled his cloak over his face and went out and stood at the mouth of the cave. Then a voice said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've broken down your altars. They've put your prophets to, the, to death with the sword. I'm the only one left, and now they're trying to kill me too. I wonder if sometimes the Lord doesn't find his prophets also to be a pain in the neck. This is a, a curious story, isn't it? Let's go back to the beginning and just walk through this very, very quickly. There are some things I want to draw to your attention. So we begin this story, remember, at the, at the, at the end, if you will, of the biggest day that Elijah has ever had. Again, fire falls from the heavens. He makes it rain. For the first time in three and a half years, it had not rained because he's the one who made it not rain. But here's what happens. Jezebel sent a message to Elijah. Got a hold somehow of his cell number and texted him this threat. <laughs> May the gods deal with me if it be, be it ever so severely if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. And the prophet who had seen the fire fall from the heavens, the prophet who had superintended the house cleaning that resulted in the deaths of 450 of the prophets of Baal, the prophet who had, by his intercession, made it rain for the first time in three and a half years, that prophet, the text says, was afraid and ran for his life. What's going on here? What's going on here? There's a lot going on here, as you might imagine, but the first and probably the most important thing that's going on here is to remember that no matter how godly Elijah was, he was still fully human. To remember that no matter how extravagant your experiences with God are, you are still nothing more nor less than a full human being. You may be interested to know that in the life of ministry, in the life especially of public service, there is an adrenaline surge that accompanies the anointing of the Lord that, that pushes you into action, that pushes you into spiritual warfare, that pushes you into a fight. And the body has to deal with that adrenaline somehow. Any of you who have been engaged in athletic contests or in high exertion intellectual approaches or problem solving know exactly what I'm talking about. It's similar to what happens to me when I preach. There is this adrenaline surge that enables you to do what you have to do to push through whatever pain there is to get the job done. You know what I'm talking about. And when that 
begins to drain out of the system, when the adrenaline begins to work its way back out of the system, what happens? It's called depression. It's a gift that God gives us to restore normal after the surge of adrenaline. Your body might ache, like this afternoon, I will go home, and if I sit too long in my chair, I won't be able to move. Why? The adrenaline is draining. And, and when I was younger in ministry, I thought this is an attack of the devil. I need to power through this. I need to work myself back up into energy. No, 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 no. All that does is make the adrenaline last longer and the depression go deeper. Now, I don't know that you've ever thought about depression as a gift, but it's how God restores balance after high energy exertion, among other things. There are many, many gifts that come with depression, with a slowed way of processing. So when I tell my ministry students about preaching like this, I tell them, don't operate any heavy equipment on Monday. Right? Don't, you can write the letter, don't mail it. Right? Just, you know what I'm talking about. So when does the text come from Jezebel? You know when it comes. He has peaked in his adrenaline surge and is now on the way down into the recovery mode of depression, and it gets him on the way down and massively exaggerates the reality of the threat. He did not even think for a moment that one woman had no power against the God who was able to take out 450 of her prophets. That is what happens. You don't think clearly. So Elijah, having spent his whole life pushing back against the threat of Baal worship, now feels like even though this battle has been decided decisively, the snake still has a head, it is still lethal, the fangs still are out, and she's after me. And so it says, go ahead and just leave it up there. Uh, go next one, and yeah. So he was afraid. He ran from Beersheba in Judah and left his servant there, and he went a day's journey into the desert. Do you know how far that is? That his panic, his terror, Beersheba is in the far north of the country. He runs 250 miles from the far north of the country to the far south of the country, leaves his servant in Judah and crosses the border outside of Jezebel's political reach. And he finds the nearest broom tree, this bush in the desert, and lies down underneath it. It's a it's a, 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 a strange desert-like. You go out, you go out to Joshua Tree and you see similar kinds of kinds of trees that have shaped their identity around lack of water. And he lies down under it, the little shade that's in the land, and prays to die. I have had enough. Take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. I'm as good as dead anyway. Fortunately, he doesn't even have enough energy to execute his desire to die. He falls asleep. Halfway through the night, an angel shakes him by the shoulder, wakes him up, and, and says, Arise and eat. And there, 
On the rock by his head is a still steaming loaf of freshly baked bread. Wait, what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And a jar of cold water. Elijah does not process this. He just gets up and eats and drinks and goes back to sleep again. Anybody want to know what the cure for this kind of adrenaline-drained depression is? Solid food, simple nourishment, and sleep. Apparently, the angel knows this. Smart angel. Right? Goes back to sleep. Then, what happens next? Shaking him on the shoulder again. The angel this time says, arise and eat, and there again, on the rock, by his head, a still seeming loaf of freshly baked bread and a jar of cold water. Arise and eat because the journey you are on is too great for you. What? When did his panicked run in terror become a journey. Journey has destiny. Journey has destination. Journey has direction. Panicked, terrified running does not. The angel knows something about Elijah's journey that Elijah does not yet know. And so there again, he is nourished, and in the strength of that food, he goes 40 days and 40 nights into the desert, and every good Jewish hearer of this story has his ears, her ears perk up. 40 days, 40 nights. Oh, this is starting to sound familiar. It's that euphemism that is used regularly for places in deserts when people having endured a long time of nothing encounter God in new ways. And he makes his way, the text says, to Horeb, you see it there? The mountain of God, otherwise known to us as Sinai. And when he gets to Sinai, when he gets to Horeb, when he gets to the mountain of God, the text says that he went into a cave. Literally, the Hebrew translates into a cleft in the rock. And if you were good Jewish listeners, you would recognize again what the narrator is trying to signal to us. When was the last time we were on this mountain? This is the mountain in which we have received the Ten Commandments. This is the mountain in which God encountered Moses. It is this cleft in the rock that God hid Moses in Exodus 32:33, covered him there with his hand, passed by to show his glory, and all Moses was able to see was where God was. That's where we are. That's the sacred mountain. That's the cleft in the rock, the place of meeting. Are you starting to get a sense of what might be going on here? And then, the voice. Notice what it says. The word of the Lord. We don't know how it came to him. 
But the word of the Lord, the voice that he had come to recognize, the word that he had come to be familiar with, said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? Now please notice, what are you doing here? What are you? You're not Moses. Doing here. This is Sinai, not Carmel. Wasn't, wasn't the way I met you on Carmel enough for you, Elijah? What are you, what are you doing here? What are, you, what are you digging around in the memories of past encounter? What are you, what are you here in places where, where, where Moses has met me? What are you doing here? How many know that sometimes when you're panicked, the place you want to go is back? To where you were and encounter God in ways that you previously have. Elijah, unfortunately, is not skilled in the nuances of God's voice. So he pushes the play button and out comes this litany of practiced, you'll notice it's practiced because he uses the identical phrase at the end of this encounter. He says, I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites have rejected your covenant. They've broken down your altars. They've put your prophets to death with the sword. I'm the only one left. Now they're trying to kill me too. In other words, all of my whole life's work has been wasted. And rather than respond to the particular issue, God says to him, go and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. Identical language to the language that is used as God encounters Moses in Exodus 33. Mm -mm 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 -mm. Something's gonna happen. So Elijah goes and stands there, and what happens? Things really start to get pretty warmed up pretty quickly. The wind blowing strong enough. Can you imagine how strong a wind has to blow to fragment a mountain? This is not an ordinary wind. It blows boulders in front of it. This is past hurricane strength that blow Volvos in the wind. You're getting the idea, though. But then the sad statement. Lord wasn't in the wind. Well, why would Elijah have a reasonable expectation that Elijah, then God would be in the wind? Can you guess how God showed up on this mountain with Moses centuries before? What one of the primary signs of God's coming on this mountain were when the Ten Commandments were given? What, in fact, God uses as one of the primary signs of his coming on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2? What is it? The wind. Okay, okay. I recognize that tune. I recognize this song. The anthem is beginning. The introduction, introductory chords are the same. Yes, yes, yes. Yes, yes. No. And then, and then, an earthquake. 
but no. Why an earthquake? Well, you know why by now. How else did God show up with Moses on this mountain when the Ten Commandments were given, the Ten Words were given? How did he show up? An earthquake. So Elijah is, is singing an old song here. He's ready for the top 40 from the 1950s. <laughs> we're cranking along here. Yes, yes. N no. And then the cruelest. Most, you can't, anybody been teased by God? You know what I'm talking about? Because here now comes what? Fire. Why would, do you think Elijah have a reasonable expectation that God might show up in like um, fire? You know why? This is deja vu all over again. Except not. Because God's not in the fire. This is what happens in moments of crisis, isn't it? This is what happens when we're at the bottom of our resources. This is what happens to us when we have nowhere else to go and nothing left to draw on. We just pray, God, do it again. Show up in familiar ways. Do the miracles in familiar ways. Come to me in language. Come to me in ways. Come to me as you have come to me before. And God says to us, nothing. Now, why does he do that? He needs us along with this prophet to recognize that as you mature, as you develop, as you grow in your faith and in your encounter with God, he wants to do not an old thing, but a new thing. He doesn't want, uh, C.S. Lewis said that the prayer that God loathes to answer is encore. Do it again. Do again what you have done. So the voice that he next hears, look at what it says. After the fire came a gentle whisper. You've got this variously translated, the sound of the thin silence is the most accurate one. It's the RSV. The sound of the thin silence, a still small voice. Any of those translations will work, but the point is not extraordinary, spectacular, blow the walls out. The voice is internal. It's part of his presence. It's part of where Elijah is. There are times, we'll talk about this tomorrow night and Monday night in the soul care class, where, where, where the voice of God is so much like your own, you can't tell which is which. And Elijah has to be trained in this. We want God to maintain distance to us. He wants to draw near to us. We want God to be other and awesome, and he wants to be near and present. We want God to do the miracle that will once again justify our existence, especially in the places of crisis. When the wheels come off and the bottom falls out and life goes sideways, we want a miracle, don't we? And instead, he promises presence. Notice the next question. 
What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? And unfortunately, it appears that Elijah has not learned the lesson that I'm thinking that we wouldn't be any more quickly to learn. He recites his litany again. The chapter ends, we're not going to read it, but the chapter ends with God finally saying to Elijah, well, first of all, you're not the only one left. I got 7,000 more kind of like you. (laughs) When you leave the mountain, I want you to go. Apparently, suicide is now out of the question. When you leave the mountain, I want you to go find Elisha the Tishbite. Anoint him. He's taken over for you. I want you to go and find the next king of Israel. Anoint him too. It's going to be a while. Ahab hasn't got the memo yet, but I'll take care of him. And within five or six verses, the whole history of Israel shifts. Apparently, God is not weak when he speaks in silence. He knows how to make stuff happen, which suggests to me that this story is less about outcomes and more about presence, less about fixing crisis and more about learning to be present in it and be shaped by it. Does that make sense? The encounter with God doesn't always fix the mess you're in, but it promises presence in it. Let's pray. Lord, as we sit with this story, which is in so many ways a paradigm of ours, We um, wish that we could manage stuff like this differently than Elijah did. But the truth is, Lord, we probably all manage it pretty much the same way. We throw ourselves on the ground in a three-year-old version of ourselves and complain. And, and the truth is, Lord, there's not illegitimacy to our complaint. What Elijah is saying is actually really true. Except that there's a bigger truth that he is not able to see because what he's saying is true. And I find myself so often in the same place. I can't see the forest for the tree immediately in front of me. I can't imagine the ways that you might work beyond the miracles that I've seen. I can't imagine you wanting to speak to me in my own voice at the center of my own heart. Thank you, Lord, that Elijah had enough of a knowledge of you that when he recognized the familiar tone of your voice. He came and bowed down. And that's, Lord, what we want to do. That's what we want to do. Lord Jesus, I don't know where my brothers and sisters here are this morning. My guess is probably based on on the journey in prayer this week that some of them are in places of crisis of one kind or another. And they just really need you to show up in an earthquake or a wind or a fire. And instead, O Lord, you draw near 
so close that the breath they breathe, so close that the eyes they see with, so close that the heart that beats at the center of their being is your heart, are your eyes, is your breath, still, small, voice. So Lord, we want to, like Elijah, take advantage of these moments and come and bow down. Bring our stuff and never shame us. Never shame us for bringing our stuff. Pray that you would help us to be as courageous as Elijah was. but also be as teachable as he became. In Jesus' name. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.